brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Welcome to Sustainability in Your Ear, the Earth911.com podcast for the week of August 13th, 2018. This week, we'll be discussing some of the information and stories from our website, and of course, answering your Earthling, or is it Earther? There is a question. Questions. So, welcome everyone. Today we have uh, Mitch Radcliffe, our Earth 911 publisher, in the studio in Tacoma with me. How are you, Mitch? Oh, doing great. And uh, we're uh, headed to the Pearl Jam concert tonight, so I'm, I'm feeling peppy. Do you do mosh pitting still? No, I don't. Okay, those I days are sitting past. in the seats. I'm sitting gotcha. in the seats. I hear you. <laughs> also today, we've got two of our excellent writers, uh, Trey Granger. Trey, where are you coming from today? I am here in Phoenix. We are in haboob season right now. You guys might have seen on the news. We get those dust storms every year in July. Yes. I have a friend who lives there, and she posted video on Facebook, and it was amazing. So how far in front of your hand can you see, or in your face can you see right now? Uh, well, luckily, I'm indoors, so I can avoid some well, of the... Well, if you the, were to go outside, Trey. Let's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's definitely a situation where when you're driving, you have no visibility if you're in a haboob. You, you basically wow. pull to the side of the road and just wait for some clearance. Amazing. So, Amazing. a sandy snowstorm. It's like that Mission Impossible movie in Dubai. It, it, that's the best descri- description I can give for you. Oh, yeah, that was a pretty and good you, one. And you, Trey, are Tom Cruise. There you go. Uh, also on the line today is Sarah Lozanova, another one of our writers. Sarah, where are you calling from today? I'm calling in from Mid-Coast, Maine, okay. and it's much less eventful here than where Trey is. No sandstorms in May? In May Not yet. at all. We have excellent visibility. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, there shouldn't be sandstorms in too many places at once. That would be too much. Well, that may be where we're going. <laughs> so before we get into our stories, we thought we'd talk a little bit about our recent Earth 911 survey. Question was, are you sure your recycling doesn't go into a landfill? Mitch, what, what did we find out? Well, we asked this question because there has been a lot of, of change in the recycling system since the Chinese announced that they weren't going to be taking our materials anymore. Uh, and in fact, uh, if you look at the data, they've not only reduced it by the 30% that they said they were going to, but they've actually reduced it by 48% in the first six months of this year. So it's really hitting hard across the country, and it's resulting in some changes in, in recycling programs, which we'll talk about in one of the stories later. But we wanted to find out whether or not people felt like their recycling is is paying off, uh, or you know the work they're doing sorting at the curb, uh, ending up in a recycling program. And uh, well, according to our Earthling respondents, seventy three percent of them doubt that their uh, recycling work ends up 
recycled and rather does end up in a landfill. Uh, so 27% of people are confident, and I'm glad to see that. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great number uh, for the United States. We would like to see it go higher. The uh, total um, U.S. recycling rate is purportedly, according to the EPA, 34.6%. Um, so this is – people's opinions are roughly where the data says that it is, but we don't know whether or not uh, individually our work pays off as recyclers. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, one of the stories that we'll talk about today um, gives some tips on how to improve your recycling. So that might make people feel a little bit more confident about what they're putting into their recycling bins. Well, and, and you know, it all comes down to, as we'll talk about later, contamination. And that just means good or bad sorting. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a new survey up every week. So go to our website, earth911.com. Be sure to check back regularly. And we'll do a recap of our finding during these podcasts. One other thing I'd like to ask about before we move on to stories is um, that we have an interview that will be posted shortly uh, with Ernie Roberts, who's a sustainability manager at Belkin. And Mitch, tell us a little bit about why we did that interview. Well, Belkin is uh, everybody who owns a computer probably has purchased a Belkin product. They make all the dongles and accessories that plug into the computer. Uh, And about uh, 10 years ago, they decided they wanted to lower their electricity uh, usage to uh, by uh, 25 percent. But they've exceeded that. Uh, They've reached 37 percent lower electrical use. And they've reduced their greenhouse gases pretty substantially as well, about a third. Uh, But they're also part of a process. This is not the end of their work. That was the beginning. And now, uh, roughly 10 years later, they're they're out and starting to talk about how they're going to continue to evolve as a, as a sustainable company. So we were pleased to have Ernie uh, in for an interview. Uh, Evelyn and I did it, and you'll be hearing it soon on mm-hmm. sustainability in your ear. So as a little teaser, what's one thing people should listen for in that interview? What was a good takeaway? Well, I think it was, it was the fact that they... Um, some insight into their the way they look at their supply chain now and the and and analyze it to understand what carbon load they're taking on mm-hmm. and you know it's it kind of sounds like a fine point but the fact is that a lot of retailers and a lot of of product manufacturers are at the receiving end of very unclean systems and we're starting to examine them for their their sustainability before we buy and if consumers can find that out, then they can help push that forward by making the decisions that support that. Well, that is like a perfect segue into our top story. And that is um, Sarah Lozanova. Tell us about these uh, top five solar using retailers since we're sort of touching on retail. Yeah, so um, one of the top ranking solar retailers is Target's. And they have over 200 megawatts of total solar energy capacity. Walmart is another real big player. They have 145 megawatts of solar panels on on their rooftops. Kohl's, Costco, and Ikea are also on the top five list. And one thing that's really interesting to note about Ikea is even though They only have about 45 megawatts of installed solar energy capacity. Um, 90% of their stores have solar installations, which is quite high. Mm -hmm. So they're offsetting the the individual store power usage as well as uh, creating a more distributed uh, grid for themselves. How do do, uh – uh, the other thing about IKEA that's great is they're also actively involved in getting consumers to adopt solar. And I know you know a little bit about that. What 
where would you go looking for solar, given that all these are solar responsible retailers? Where would I go to find a solar system for my own home, yes, you mean? right. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Costco actually has kiosks in its store from Sunrun, mm-hmm. and that's for residential solar installations. And they also sell solar panel kits. IKEA does as well, but to my knowledge, they're mostly in Europe. Okay. Um, their kits, yeah. So I'd probably go to Costco. So, you know, I, I know I've seen these these panels as I fly over various cities. Um, is there a kind of an evolving way to know as you walk in the door whether or not it's a solar-powered facility? Uh, uh, can you look for, like, a Yelp sticker that says we're, we're green? <laughs> Uh, or do you have to climb on the roof to determine whether or not your solar or your retailer is solar friendly? Yeah, you might get in trouble with the store if you climb <laughs> on the roof, but that would be a good a good way to determine it. It's surprising um, to me that some of these stores don't necessarily promote it more. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of this information I had to find kind of on sustainability pages and things like that. So it can be difficult to determine that unless it's um, a new store and it's a higher profile installation you know it's interesting some areas of the country i think it might not actually be a selling point to be doing a lot of solar power but in other areas i think it i think it would be so uh, i think it would be kind of interesting to see if they if these uh, retailers start figuring out that promoting the fact that they're going more and more green is actually a good way to lure some consumers in, inside well based on the the surveying that we've done with people who read earth 911 it makes a really big difference yeah the, the interesting question, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine in New York earlier today about this very topic, and he says, well, you know, you people out on the West Coast care about this stuff, but New Yorkers, and, and that's a very typical response from an East Coaster. But on the other hand, they are they adopt this stuff just as much as we do. Yeah, I don't think that's really So there's a psychological true. barrier to overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's where these all these companies, as Sarah and, and Sarah just really highlighted it. You have to go look for this on business sustainability sites, not just as a consumer. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a need for kind of a broad discussion about why isn't everything green? Yeah. What do you think, Sarah? You know, one thing that's interesting to note is that a lot of these stores are installing solar for financial reasons mm-hmm. due to cost, yeah. and there's also tax credits available for them, and they can take an accelerated depreciation of the system. So for them, they many in many cases, it's done for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's the proof, really, that we, you know, the economy can move forward in a greener way. Uh, it's not just the subsidies that are making this worthwhile. It has long-term payoffs, as well as the fact that you can recoup your uh, investment sh- in a short period of time. Yeah. And the cost of solar has fallen so much in yeah. the last mm-hmm. decade. I just think they'd find it even more financially um, worthwhile uh, if they were marketing it to their consumers. But, you know, they, they probably know who their con- consumers are. So um, This is an active discussion in the, okay. in, the, in the retailing world. Is do consumers care or is this just sort of a checklist item? Mm-hmm. But if it's a checklist item that's essential, if yeah. it's not sustainable, I'm not going to consider it. That can be uh, death to the retailer. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to be more aware of that. I think so, too. Sure. 
compliance issue, though, too, because, I mean, in California, they're trying to pass laws where 50% mm-hmm. of your energy must be renewable. So these businesses are being forethinking and, and forward-thinking and getting out in front of the issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and profiting by doing so, which is the, the thing we, uh, whenever we talk about re, uh, uh, regulation, uh, some of this regulation is not bad. It actually ends up helping these companies be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about sort of, you know, um, consumers and consumers' opinions about products, Trey, why don't you tell us about GMOs in your food? This is a really, I think it was an even hotter issue a few years ago, but it still continues to be a hot issue over uh, food labeling and, you know, the significance of the um, genetically modified, is it organisms? GMOs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as uh, was mentioned by Evelyn, um, a couple of years ago, the U.S. passed a law in 2016 under President Obama that required labeling of GMO foods. And GMO means genetically modified organisms. And so the reason we wanted to to, uh, target this issue right now is that the labeling is set to kick in. They still don't have a defined date, but it's supposed to be sometime this summer. They just finished up a public a comment period, the U.S. Uh, DA, the U.S. Uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration pr- pr- did a public comment period. So any day now, we can start to see the requirement of labeling for these foods. And so the article that I wrote basically just summarizes uh, what GMO means and what the science behind it, whether it's it's uh, good or bad. Um, the, the basic nutshell is that GMO is pretty much an alternative to pesticides. They have modified the crops, the seeds for these um, crops we grow a lot in the United States, like corn and uh, soy, so they are resistant to pests and insects. And the result is they're actually changing the DNA of these products. So there is some concern, both from an environmental standpoint, Mm -hmm. about what happens to the surrounding ecosystem, as well as the science standpoint of, is it harmful to consumer health to use these products? A lot of scientists have said they are safe for human consumption. Um, However, the environmental side, it's much more data that, that goes against GMOs. The bee population has suffered because of the introduction of these uh, GMO seeds. And there's just some concern about, are we taking too many efforts to maximize food production and hurting the environment as a result? Well, and you found, and you reported that they found in some crops that actually reduces the use of of insecticides, but in others, it requires more insecticides uh, or herbicides to fight off weeds because the crops are no longer resistant to that. Um, So it's a mixed bag. But in terms of the science of the safety, it sounds like, uh, you know, 90 percent of of the researchers believe there isn't a threat and they have found no uh, causal links between tumors and cancer. But something with a uh, neonicotinoid, which is uh, a a type of uh, insecticide that is being built into organisms – really sounds kind of startling. So should we trust, and this is, a, this is a strange question, but should we trust the science to be right or should we take a precautionary approach and say, we just haven't found the problem yet? I think the nice thing is with the labeling, we can allow people to make their own decisions because mm-hmm. if you are concerned about GMOs, it's going to be labeled so you will know which ones have them. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally try to avoid GMOs when I am buying products and that especially means buying less processed foods 
because a lot of processed food uses corn or soy mm -hmm. as one of the ingredients. Um, but it's really up to you how you see the health impact. Uh, the nice thing is you'll be able to be more educated in the future. Yeah, I, I completely agree about consumer choice. It's that we have this interesting, uh, as, as environmentally aware people, we point to science that proves the, science, the globe is warming. But when we are concerned about something like GMOs, which are so new that we don't really fully have data or that, uh, and yet science says, you know, we're not finding anything, we distrust science then. So it, it's an interesting um, uh, conflict that we, we go through every time we think about uh, whether we feel safe. And one other important thing to note is for those who are buying organic, which is obviously a big trend over the past mm -hmm. five to 10 years, organic food by definition is non-GMO. So keep buying mm -hmm. that organic food. Well, and you just hit on another thing is the seeds uh, that they're selling are one annual seed bin, uh, seed crop, right? Uh, and it used to be that farmers were able to set aside some of their own seeds and replant the following year. But these GMO label or these GMO seeds are actually a, a way of forcing the farmers to buy a new crop every year. Which oh, raises our true. costs. That's true. Well, it's going to be a really interesting test of sort of um, consumers too, mm -hmm. because you know the thought was, as Trey said, at least will be it'll be labeled so people can make choice, and that was a very threatening concept to most of the you know manufactured food producers. Right. I know in this state we had an initiative for um, GMO labeling, and the um, grocery manufacturers organization put up. Um, you know, millions, I mean, yeah, $13 million to fight that initiative. Um, so uh, there's been a lot of concern that if people see the label, mm -hmm. they will not buy the product. But I, I think it'll be interesting to see if that's true. I think a lot of people right now buy their favorite products and are not terribly concerned about the ingredients. I, 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 I pay attention, but if you think about what might they have accomplished if they'd spent that $13 million in dialogue instead oh. of simply trying to tamp down the possibility of regulation, uh, where would we actually be? Yeah. That's a, that's a different question entirely. Hey, well, see, we keep hitting the same theme. Mm -hmm. Talk to the consuming public, the people who are going to spend the money on your product. They'll tell you what they want. They'll tell you what they want. Well, our next story is about a cup of coffee. And I know I certainly prefer to start my day with a coffee or maybe tea. And I think a lot of people are just like me. So there are some ways that you can enjoy your coffee with a little bit less waste. Um, this is a story uh, from August 6th on our website. Daniel Dern is the author. And uh, he has some good tips. Um, his tips include, you know, when you're at the coffee shop, if you're going to sit and drink your coffee, you can ask for a ceramic cup. Now, I have to tell you, it took me a long time to figure this out. But I do now, if I'm getting a coffee for here, I'll ask that, it, I'll ask that they put it in a cup for me. Um, you can also bring your own cup or travel mug. And many people do that. Um, what we would like is something where you can pick up a somewhat disposable coffee uh, travel mug and so you can walk out with it easily and yet not have to carry a cup around with you all day mm -hmm. and i know different coffee makers are looking at that but i haven't seen a good one yet well uh, uh, as a mm -hmm. as a multi-day multi-time a day starbucks person uh you know i've i've adopted the reusable cups the reusable cups kind of i wouldn't say wear out but stink out 
Really? Yeah, they, you know, they, they're, they're, they've got enough grain to them that mm-hmm. the, the, the coffee oils stick in them. So they're a little it, porous. Yeah, and it, so it doesn't f- taste good after a while. So I, I go for the, the when I'm there, mm-hmm. I will certainly use a ceramic cup. But the, um, uh, the other thing that I, I think you can do is ask for no c- cuff because that's yes. the second thing that they will put on is, you know, it's hot drink. You need a cuff. Or they'll put it or double cup it. So right. I always ask for no cuff, no double cup, and no lid. Oh, but you're kind of living dangerously if you uh, have to walk any distance I know, at all. And I could be like that woman who was burned by her coffee <laughs> right. at McDonald's and Sue Starbucks, which they always say, no, no, you have to have a lid. And I say, <laughs> no, really, I don't need a lid. I'm a big boy now. Right. Yeah, well, the, and the suggestion is, is if you are going to a place that routinely double cups, to uh, at least do away with a double cup and say, yeah. I'll take a sleeve. And the sleeves tend to be a little bit more recyclable than the cups. They don't have that plasticky lining. Well, I like Daniel's uh, suggestions about brewing your own, too, because that's the other way I go. And, and uh, he, uh, using a, re- a reusable filter, cloth mm-hmm. filter or a metal filter for your coffee or using a French press, uh, uh, both are excellent ways to reduce your waste. Uh, the paper uh, uh, filters are... Just more junk. Right. Just uh, They're definitely the French press, I would say, if you're a regular home consumer. And then you can also, if you're on the go, put it into your own care, your own uh, travel mug and then leave the house. I also like um, to use an, an Italian stovetop espresso maker. Yeah. yeah. It's the, the simplest ones, thing yeah. in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, you know, you put it together with your car. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Coffee, put hot water in. And in a very short period of time, you've got a you know beautiful espresso. You can add hot milk too. So I think that's the way to go. So Sarah and Trey, which, what what are, what are you guys in terms of your coffee or tea consumption? Uh, I actually don't drink coffee or tea. I've been off caffeine for a long time. Um, but one of the things that I love about the story is he mentioned at the very end the composting aspect. Yep. Coffee grounds really rich in nitrogen. So if you have a home composting, they're great to include in that uh, process. I generally try to drink coffee at home, and that's an easy way to avoid using disposable cups. So, Trey, uh, you know, I know we make a distinction in in compost materials between green and brown waste, and and coffee grounds are brown, but are they brown waste? The irony is they're actually green waste. And so what's the difference for our, our listeners, just very quickly? So green waste is high in nitrogen, and brown waste is high in carbon. Okay. Most green would be uh, the organic, like uh, food or uh, garden materials. Brown would be more towards paper or cardboard. And so the roasting of the coffee doesn't turn it into more carbon intensive. It's still essentially uh, nitrogen intensive. Correct. Huh. 
Well, good to know. Thanks. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I was going to add, sometimes if you are going to a local uh, coffee store, if you're building up your garden, like in the springtime, you can ask them for coffee grounds and they'll have Mm -hmm. them available for gardeners too. Yeah, I've picked up many bags at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. They they do wonders for my rhododendrons. Oh, very good. All right. That's probably all we have to say about coffee. Uh, How about, Except I'll have some more. We have some more? Oh, I'm probably done with my coffee for the day. But, uh, Mitch, why don't you tell us about how we can recycle better? Especially- well, this is another story by Daniel Dern, uh, and it's about adjusting to the changes in recycling rules that are going on, as we talked about before, because uh, the Chinese changes, uh, ban on, on uh, imported waste is, is changing the way recycling works in the United States. So there are a lot of, of uh, things to consider, but this ultimately comes down to the fact that our recycling system does not keep things separate very effectively. We put them into different bins, but then we all put them put them in one big blue bin, which is sent off to a place that specializes in then sorting it back out, which just seems to me like a very strange way to use our money because that part of the business is growing at 38, 39% a year. The rest of the waste business is growing at 7% of the year. So we're concentrating money on unsorting stuff that started out sorted. And that has been the basis for all these changes in the local recycling rules. Uh, They're not taking paper necessarily. They're not taking certain forms of plastic. They Certainly, it has to do with uh, normal safety concerns at the recycler too because putting a plastic bag in with your recycling can cause havoc in a a recycling facility because it will get caught in something and break the machinery and that can hurt people. But at the same time, we do take a lot of time to sort it out and then it gets all mixed back Mm -hmm. up. So Daniel went through and started looking at, uh, in response to changes in his own community's recycling program, they stopped taking several materials and they also are raising prices because of the Chinese ban. And he has a number of excellent uh, suggestions going through material by material with what he what the problem is and what he's going to do. So, for instance, how do you take care of newspapers now that most of it will end up in a landfill? He's committing to taking all of his uh, papers to the kennel or veterinarian where he uh, boards his dog when he's out of town. And so now they at least get one more use, and that's a big step in the right direction. Where, you know, so a reuse strategy is one way to respond to this. Uh, with his deposit bottles, he's actually set that apart as a completely separate bin on his back porch, and then he takes that in for cash every once in a while. Uh, but previously, he had treated all as one set of materials. So mm-hmm. essentially what he's doing is responding by sorting even better and making sure it gets right to where somebody will be able to use it the right way. And so I strongly encourage people to take a look at the article and, and make some decisions about how they're going to change. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the key is um, first always, you know, reduce and, mm-hmm. you know, reuse where you can and then and then go to recycle in your third pass. Um, so these are really good suggestions. Well, and, and Daniel estimates that he's reduced his uh, weekly recycling bin uh, pickups by about half of the volume because he's now directing it into more specialized uh, channels. Mm -hmm. I will say, I think there's still a really important role maybe for our website to play in that I will look, I have my recycling guide up in my cupboard and I look at it pretty frequently and there's still items that I can't, you know, that are sort of sort of like one type of thing, but not mm-hmm. like another type of thing that I, and I can't tell, you know, how strictly to interpret. So I would love to be able to take a picture and post it on uh, 
you know, Instagram or something and say, what about this? Well, and that's, uh, that's something we thought about using the forums for so mm-hmm. that people could answer one another's questions. Uh, and then we might be able to augment that with some um, image recognition technology. So once somebody recognizes one thing as being a type of thing, everything that looks like it can be automatically recognized. So uh, I'm not committing to this, but maybe okay. you'll be able to wave something in front of your computer or phone in order to get a sense of what to do with it and, and through Earth on one one. That would be great. One more recycling. Trey, did you want to talk to us about um, recycling or refilling ink cartridges? It, sound, it seems like maybe um, things are changing in the ink cartridge world. Yeah, so this story is actually part of our Recycling Mystery series, which uh, a lot of these get prompted based on user questions. So keep sending those in, asking whether a certain product uh, can be recyclable because they turn into a lot of great articles. Um, this one specifically it's really a decision consumers have to make for ink cartridges from your printer, whether you refill or recycle them. And um, to me, I've always loved recycling trends. And one thing I've always noticed is that um, when manufacturers get involved in the recycling process, it's usually because of legislation or pressure from consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, the case of cartridges, that's actually uh, not the case. Manufacturers have been involved in this from day one. And the curious thing to me is to ask why that is. And one of the reasons for that is because refilling is such an option that's readily available to consumers. And obviously, if you refill a cartridge, you're not going to go buy a new one from that manufacturer. So um, it's definitely a debate that is going on in environmental circles about whether to refill or recycle, because obviously the manufacturers want that business. So they are going to dissuade consumers from taking the refill option. Refilling is going to be a little less expensive and obviously produce less waste um, for the environment. Uh, But there have been studies. um, Hewlett-Packard actually has a study they've commissioned that found that 37% of tested refilled ink cartridges failed during use or right out of the box. And obviously, if you're a consumer... You don't want to buy a, a cartridge or a refill a cartridge and have it fail right away because right. then it, it seems like, well, I just spent some money and I uh, did some environmental footprint and it didn't accomplish what I wanted. Um, I will say that I have always refilled cartridges myself, haven't had any bad experience. Um, I would definitely recommend the refill option. There is a limit. You can only refill a cartridge two or three times before it doesn't have the uh, capability anymore of being refilled. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing to be aware of is you definitely want to check the warranty on your printer because there are some manufacturers that have tried to uh, invalidate the warranty on the printer if you use remanufactured cartridges. So if you've used a cartridge several times and it's no longer refillable, is it still recyclable? Yes. So there are a ton of mail-in programs out there. It's actually one of the uh, best fundraisers for nonprofits. Mm -hmm. They will collect cartridges from businesses and schools and send them in to a company like Funding Factory um, for money, which is a great program to uh, encourage recycling. And and just, you know, this is the thing I wonder about. I've even watched people spill this uh, refill ink all over the place, uh, which is not liquid in many cases it's a it's a it's a dust is it safe to i feel like i'm in the running man is it safe uh is it safe to refill a cartridge 
Maybe I we'll would go to a third party, uh, Costco refills, uh, cartridges, cartridge world. They have a bunch of locations throughout the United States. Um, you can buy your own kits, but I personally wouldn't do it. I would be more mm-hmm. worried about doing it wrong than mm-hmm. about yeah. the safety of it. Um, but it's very inexpensive. I mean, it's as low as $6 for certain cartridges to get them refilled. That's great. Well, that's, and, and, and if, if you can't refill it, you can recycle it. So there are, you know, again, we have choices, lots of choices in this case, and it depends some, somewhat on your preference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one other thing to note, I don't think I put it in the story, so I apologize. Um, for those who do use printers, make sure you print at least once per month, even if you don't have anything to print, because cartridges will dry up. Mm-hmm. Even if they're full, you could have a full cartridge that you don't use for two or three months and you have to replace it or refill it because the ink is no longer good. Yep. Oh, that's really good advice. I think I need to I need that piece of advice, Trey, so thanks. So we had one more uh, one more story we wanted to mention. This actually is something that we put in. Uh, we were doing a little partnership with a, uh, a, a conference that's going on in Birmingham, uh, UK, uh, on September 12th and 13th. It's the RDM, RWM show. Uh, and one of the reasons we like this is that the tickets are free for people who want to go in and learn about what's going on at the cutting edge of recycling and sustainability. So uh, check out the article. It's uh, RWM Exhibition Maps a Cleaner, Greener Future. And you'll find links if you happen to be in the United Kingdom, uh, in central in the central Midlands, I think is where the Birmingham is located. Uh, and uh, you can go for free to find out. There uh, is a Future Resources Expo. There are, uh, the the uh, leader of the Green Party is going to be speaking. Uh, consultants from the Climate Group are going to be lead, leading seminars on uh, which companies are most environmentally uh, minded and collaborating to get customers more information. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it looks like a really interesting event, and we encourage anybody who's in the locality to stop by. Yeah, that does look great. I wish I was going to be in the old locality. Well, I, I love Birmingham. I know. Well, let's do some reader questions. Our first one comes from Barbara from Point Pleasant, New Jersey. Uh, she contacted us on Facebook, and her question is, can I put the 1994 World Book Encyclopedias into our bins for recycling? How are they recycled? Well, you know, uh, Trey, why don't you? I, I know you wrote the recycling mystery uh, on this. Take a take a shot at what we do with that 1994 World Book. Yeah, I, I actually have some personal experience with this because I helped clean out a house uh, last year that had 30 years of someone living there, and so a bunch of stuff. And the hardest thing by far to recycle was the World Book encyclopedias. Mm-hmm. Um, they are definitely not something you want to put in your curbside bin. Uh, if you want to tear off the cover, um, you can recycle the actual pages of the book as paper, but it's not very easy to get that cover off. Um, the suggestion I will definitely make is find a book recycler. The two that I know of that are most prominent in the U.S. are called Better World Books and Discover Books. They actually offer drop-off bins in parking lots throughout the United States mm-hmm. where you can uh, drop off these books for recycling um, you could try to take them to a Goodwill, but a lot of Goodwills are going to say, we can't resell these, so there's no point in us accepting them. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Uh, the information in the 1994 World Book Encyclopedia actually might qualify as pollution today because it's <laughs> inaccurate. 
Uh, and well, and so if you gave it to on, a school and, and kids are yeah. you know only up to date on the state of science to 1994. That would be sad. That would really be sad. But there's stuff in the encyclopedias that's probably still perfectly usable. I used to like looking through the fashion plates of over the ages or things like that. And those are all great and beautiful things. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is that we have uh, – in the Wikipedia world, we have the sense that anything that's written down is accurate. Mm-hmm. And, that's true. And, and what we have – if you look at the way our education system works, we teach 30 years ago mm-hmm. uh, because that's what our teachers know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they don't necessarily keep up with what's going on. Great teachers do. But uh, old information is another form of pollution that that's we true. need to be aware of. It's dangerous anyway. Yeah. Because, yeah, uh, it certainly looks like it should be credible when it is out of date. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, we, we would have no information about GMO foods in mm-hmm. the 1994. And that's would be considered something – uh, that the encyclopedia, the book that's supposed to let you know the world, would provide. So you know, yeah. it's an interesting question. Do you do you throw this stuff away and, and 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 have it recycled, or do you reuse it? I would argue, in the case of encyclopedias, it better to have it recycled and and not reuse it. I think it would be better to have it recycled. Although, um, if you live someplace where you've got one of those um, businesses that is sort of turning everything into potential art supplies. Maybe you could contact them and say, is this something you might have any interest in for the pictures? Yeah, right. And 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 there's a lot of ways you could use the material in it. And in fact, if you look at the uh, uh, the way people have cut uh, in, engravings out of older mm-hmm. books, that's the kind of thing that also becomes forms of art in people's homes. Yeah. So you could, you could do lots of interesting things with it, but I just don't think passing it on is necessarily the best answer anymore. No, I agree. So our next question is a really good one. Bill in Scranton, Pennsylvania asks or says, your usage of the term earthling is offensive based on the fact that goslings and ducklings are young, inexperienced birds. Maybe human infants should be called earthlings, but earther is a better description for humans that are now living on earth, and it's preferable based on common terminology. Let me know if your team agrees or disagrees. Well, you know, we take this seriously, and we are having this conversation with the team so that Bill can hear um, but it's a great question in a couple of ways. So, look, the, the suffix ling comes from both Germanic and Latin, and it does denote young and inexperienced. However, um, we are also, to some extent, young and inexperienced in our presence on the earth as a species. And that's why we decided to go with earthling, because we're capable of growth and change, immense growth and change. And so we are all young until we make ourselves older through experience. Now, the other – and then with regard to the word earther, and I, I want to hear everybody else's thoughts, but this is this, this, this was what I sent back to Bill, too, and asked him to listen to the show. I think earther does make sense, but it has two negative connotations, and one of which is a radical group, Earth First, which I myself was a member of, I will confess. And when, when was that? Uh, back in the 1980s. Okay. And uh, Earth First were known as Earth Firsters or Earthers, and uh, – Frankly, we did some things that were sort of radical, like spiking logging roads. Mm. I had not admitting personally to having done that. But there were a lot of those kinds of things uh, that uh, we don't want to endorse. Uh, I grew up. And <laughs> the second association is really the more different, difficult one, and it's the recent one. And that is flat earthers, who are known as earthers. And we don't want to give them any credence at all. So what should we call the people who are of earth? Well, I have a great fondness for the term or, or the word earthling because of uh, Marvin the Martian from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. 
And Marvin, what do you have to say about that? Oh, you've made me so angry. <laughs> I asked Doug, our, our producer, who, unbeknownst to me, has a capacity for doing Marvin the Martian impressions. Earthlings. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't think I do it as well as you. Yeah. Say Earthlings. Ooh, ooh Earthling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that a, the Earthling take me to your leader mm-hmm. concept? So I kind of, I'm sort of fond of it for that. And then when I think of, um, I don't know, Earther to me doesn't have much of a, um excitement to it. I don't know. I mean, what do we, Martians or Martians? If we had people from Venus, they, what was that name? Was it Venusians? Venusians, yeah. Yeah, so those all sound a little bit more elegant than Earth. In Star Trek, too, they would say Earthling. <laughs> yes. Uh, or Human. Or Terran. 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 I mean, I, Which, I do going like back that. To the, going back to the Latin root. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of ways that we can do it. Of course, now the question is, if we evolve and move off of the planet, are we Earthers or Earthlings or Terrans anymore? Or are we the residents of wherever we start our lives? Are we just are we humanoids? There you go. We uh-huh. may just be part of a large crowd. Maybe so. I don't know. So uh, sapiens, sapiens, on our better days, anyway. Um, so tr- another thing to uh, mention in, in favor of the the term Earthling when he says they're young and inexperienced, I feel like a lot of our content is catered towards people who are just starting to understand some of these green concepts. A great and point. The GMO story, like a lot of people didn't know what that was, so they come to Earth 911 and learn about that topic. So it, it shouldn't be seen as as insulting as much as you're here to try to get involved to learn more. We're all in this together and encouraging. That's good. Well, Sarah, do you have any vote on this issue? I actually quite like the word earthling because I find myself learning every day about mm-hmm. different species, about ways to protect the Earth. So I, I think it reminds us that we're we're constantly learning about the Earth. I, I think that's a that's a great uh, way to close the discussion. But uh, Bill, if you have further thoughts, please share them with us. In fact, I'd be happy to have you uh, uh, dial in and participate in the discussion at some point. Uh, Absolutely, if you, if you want to do that. Uh, but that's that's the team's thoughts, and uh, we we hope that that helps spur some conversation out there. Well, I think with that, Earthlings, that's a wrap for this week. But it is Earthlings. It is Earthlings. Uh, so, if you have thoughts, uh, feedback, if you would like uh, to put in a vote for a different terminology, send us an email at uh, feedback at earth911.com. And you can follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spreaker, and as always at our earth911.com website. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Have a beautiful couple of weeks. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 